I am Citizen 44. This show is being sponsored by Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. We're all living in a simulation. Some alien race out there using our misery for entertainment. How's the comic book going? It's languishing unfinished. You don't have time because you're working your ass off at Kyle's Terrible Restaurant. 359, Bob. Cutting it close. You should be grateful that you have a job. Grateful. Maybe I'll join you. (laughs) I feel like I'm 14 again. Drawing comics and needing a ride home. (laughs) Close your eyes for a minute. I want you to visualize what you'll be doing 10 years from now. Are you serious? I think you've lost your mind. No, you're not visualizing it, Bobby. Come on, close your eyes. Don't close my eyes anymore. I feel like an idiot. You could roll. I remember. It's completely useless talent. Rising Phoenix. Come for the pizzas. Oh, my God. Stay for the bowling. Your aliens made you do that strike. It's my destiny, Bobby. I know it is. Imagine being an owner, drawing your comics whenever you want. I'm in. Serious? That's what I'm talking about. My partner, Carlos, makes this delicious dough with his hands. Yes. I got 300 scores before, but nobody ever put my pictures in the papers. You should enter our grand opening tournament. You haven't even seen me roll, Hoffy. You haven't seen the action on my ball. Mario put his money in, too. He has a right to ask questions. I'm his prophecy. I've been helping you. For months, you've been helping Mario. You are a paranoid little child. I don't know what to say, Theo. I'm leaving a lot of money on the table. Nice going. You're going down. Not your fault. Well, it's not my fault, then it's Tanya's. If it's not Tanya's fault, then it's the aliens. You need to take care of yourself, Bobby. I am fine. I am a grown woman. These could be the best years of your life. Do you realize that? Visualize. This is what I live for, Hoffy. Frame 10. These two geniuses are opening up a pizza parlor slash bowling alley. It's classy. Phoenix, Oregon. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 72. Super cool show today. Lots of groovy people coming to say hello and say things about stuff that they might be doing or not. On the show today, we have Mr. Rick Derringer, a legendary person in the music biz. Ripping ripping guitar player silly ripping check out the video rock and roll coochie coo with the ringo star all-star band rock and roll coochie coo we got rick derringer on the show today we've also got gary lundgren checking in from the road he is out there for seven more weeks with his movie phoenix oregon He's pimping that thing all over the country and having a really good time with his wife, Annie, his daughter, Flannery, and his buddy and producer of the movie, Louis Rodriguez, Louis G, Phoenix, Oregon. We got Rick Derringer on the show. That's super fun. Rick Derringer. All right, here we go. Gary? 
Mark Aaronsburg, hello. Hello, Gary Lundgren. How art thou? I'm well. Where art thou? I'm on the streets of Modesto right now looking for a quiet place to uh, duck into. You're in Modesto, California. Where exactly is Modesto, California? It is in the Central Valley. It's where George Lucas grew up. He made American Graffiti, which was set in Modesto based on his high school years. It's about an hour and a half south of Sacramento towards Los Angeles. And you're screening your movie tonight? We are. We're screening at the State Theater. It's 85 years old. It's beautiful. It's a classic venue. And uh, George went to it. We just sat our four o'clock screening and there were 57 people at it. Having 57 paying customers is a very good thing, believe me. You're just getting started out of Oregon now, right? Yeah, we finished Oregon. We played Eureka and then we did Mount Shasta, Reading, and Crescent City. Yeah, once we did Reading, we did Oakland, San Francisco, Santa Rosa, and now we're in Modesto. Folks, this is Gary Lundgren, my office mate and friend who's traveling around the country screening his movie Phoenix, Oregon. How long have you been out and about now? I think we're closing in on the end of week three here in a couple days. Then that leaves seven more weeks on the road. Wow, you're in a couple of RVs that are wrapped like giant movie posters driving around the country, greeting people, you're doing Q&As, you're selling t-shirts. What's the experience been thus far for you guys? So far, it's exceeding a lot of our expectations. Even today, just the fact that almost 60 people came out at four o'clock on a Friday, it's kind of astounding to me. Well, it sounds like you've had some really good reviews come in. Yeah, if you do some searches and run into some reviews, then I think people are encouraged that it's worth seeing. Yeah, it definitely helps. How's Annie holding up? Annie's holding up great. Her and Lily are working on the press, working on what's coming in each town, because we haven't met the theaters often. So we roll up in our RV, and you don't know if they're going to be supportive or excited we're there, or we annoying them. So you go up unsure of what to expect. It was very exciting. How's your daughter Flannery doing with all this? You having a hoot? She is, yeah. We keep reminding her that this is the best summer of her life. (laughs) She's not believing it yet, but I think she's starting to. She's set a summer bucket list, all the stuff she wants to do this summer before we get back. And she's learning manual photography with my 5D, so she's taking great pictures, learning aperture and film speed and lens speed and all that, which is really cool to see. Only 13 and the apple's already landed on her shoulder and she's getting ready to do stuff like daddy does. (laughs) Have you had any trouble with the law? Oh, yeah. We've been kicked out of a couple of areas we tried to park our RV. The police knocked on our trailer at 4.30. We probably should have pretended we weren't there, but Louie answered it. And they let us stay there. It was nice. We were parked in a good area. But other than that, we're learning the places you should park, can park, where you can get electricity and water and all those good things. So we're gradually figuring out how to do this. I think it's good for me. 
it's a bit of a grind out finding laundry you just have a little fridge so we're constantly figuring out how not to spend too much money go to the grocery store prepare meals all those things it's been mostly fun and not hard so we're grateful for that what has been the coolest thing that's happened since you've been on the road i think just meeting people i'm an introvert so i don't go out of my way to see people it's something i kind of avoid but this movie is just sort of forcing me to interact with strangers on a daily basis and talk to them and answer questions. And I've been loving it. I've met so many cool people who are touched by the movie. And, and we're kind of an open book. We talk to them and hang out with them and get to know them. And then they friend us on Facebook. So it's just kind of like we're making friends everywhere we go. And that's a surprise. I wasn't expecting that at all. It's been nice. I think that's the biggest surprise and the coolest thing about it. I don't want to speak for my future self yet, but I think it's making me more comfortable with the idea of being that way more in my daily life. And the other thing is it's made me want to make another movie. I think you finish a movie and it's so all-consuming that you think, I'm never going to make another movie. That's it. That's my last one. And you kind of believe it when you're saying it, too, because it was just so hard. Every aspect of it was so difficult that you just don't want to climb that mountain again. But seeing how audiences are responding to the movie, how much of it's working and landing with people, it just makes you want to make another one. So I've been writing the next one. And so that's another surprise where I thought I'll never be able to write on the road, but I've been writing every day. Are you writing a part for a podcaster in there? Some kind of podcaster part? Yes. A happy, zen-like, middle-aged podcaster. I'll see if I can help you with the casting on that. <laughs> Definitely. You've got a voice for radio. i got a face for radio too, Gary. <laughs> I really appreciate you calling in and please give everybody my best on the tour and and go get him, man. Thank you, Mark. God bless you, sir. Appreciate it. God bless you too, brother. Hey, Rick Derringer. How you doing? I'm well, brother. How are you? Good. Everything's good. Are you over there in Florida? Daytona Beach, Florida. Oh, I've never even been to Florida. Oh, it's a paradise. It's a beautiful tropical world where the weather's beautiful 99% of the time and they have everything here. No state taxes, everything people want. How close are you to the ocean? We are a couple miles from the ocean. Oh, that's beautiful. Do you have any children? We have two children, a boy and a girl, both in their mid-20s. Our daughter works a couple different jobs and goes to school. Our son has graduated from school. He's trained in internet technologies, and uh, he has his own business and keeps himself busy. Are they musically inclined at all? Did the apple fall far? Our son raps on a couple of our uh, musical pieces, uh, several of them now. He's <laughs> quite the rapper. You've played with everybody. It's a very impressive discography. The other day, I watched you jamming out rock and roll coochie coo with Ringo's all-star band. Edgar Winter was on stage. You were ripping on guitar, and clearly, you have not lost a step. One of the high points with Ringo, on Ringo's 70th birthday, he celebrated it at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, and Paul showed up to surprise Ringo 
and sing, They Say It's Your Birthday. Wow. You've played with Alice Cooper, Richie Havens, Todd Rundgren, Steely Dan, Cindy Lauper, Barbra Streisand. You've been with everybody. What does it feel like to be such a staple in the music business where your friends are some of the biggest rockers and entertainers in the history of music? It feels like I've been successful. It feels like people like what I do. I've always wanted to play guitar and sing, and I've had the opportunity to do it since I was about 15 years old. I started when I was nine, but I had a band together by the time I was about 15 years old. They said you'd never be able to make a living playing music. You've got to do something. So I actually enrolled in the Dayton Art Institute. I was a budding artist. I thought probably I'd maybe become an architect or something. My portfolio was accepted. I was supposed to go uh, away to school in September of 1965, and uh, in August, we were discovered by the band called The Strange Loves, and we were taken to New York City where we recorded Hang On Sloopy. Hang On Sloopy was a huge hit, summer 65. So I've been doing it successfully since I was a kid. The McCoys was the name of my band that I started when I was about uh, 14, maybe. And um, the first song we learned as a whole band was a song by the Ventures called The McCoy. And we thought, wouldn't this be cool if we called ourselves the McCoys? Because then we'll have a theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Notwithstanding the fact that that was the only song we knew. But that was the start of the McCoys. And uh, we went through several permutations. But then very quickly, by the time I was 17, we were discovered. And I went to New York City and recorded Hang On Sloopy. So I've only known success from its ground roots, how success starts. The first time I played three or four songs at a local establishment, I was just a little kid. I was probably only nine years old. They passed the hat and I made $45. So I thought, wow, this is fabulous. You can do what you like to do and make money. And so I've been doing that ever since. <laughs> How did you come across the guitar? My uncle played the guitar. My mom and he always wanted to sing and play together, which they did when they were young. So she taught me and my brother to sing harmony when I was about six or seven years old. We'd drive with her when she went to work at Westinghouse Electric. She wound electric motors at night. She was on the night shift <laughs> winding electric motors. And on the way to work on occasion, she would play the radio and she would teach one of us to sing this part and the other one to sing this part. So the first thing I learned was to sing and to sing harmony. Everybody hears through earbuds and through all kinds of ways, but seldom anymore do they really get the opportunity to just sit down and hear somebody professionally play. My uncle brought his guitar into our kitchen, put a little guitar amplifier there and started playing. And I was so affected by the feeling that you get from real music being transmitted from a human to another human. And I immediately was hooked. And uh, when I was eight years old, I told my parents, you gotta get me a guitar, and I gotta have a guitar. So for my ninth birthday, they got me a, an electric guitar. As a matter of fact, a little amplifier. And uh, I started playing immediately. What was your father doing? My dad worked on the railroad. He was like, uh, John Henry was a steel-driving man. 
my dad worked actually out on a little car with a little crew, and they would drive up and down the track on the track in that little car, a little cart, whatever you call it. They call them a motor car, but he would actually take that little crew, and that was their job to hammer those spikes and make sure everything was secure and the tracks were level. He was the youngest section foreman on the railroad. He was made a section foreman on the Nickel Plate Road when he was only 17. So he was a hard-working man, and uh, he wanted the best for his kids. He knew that I wanted to play guitar, and he made sure that they got me that guitar. He then became the McCoy's road manager. <laughs> huh. So you made him work even harder. <laughs> That's right. I love my parents for that. My mom showed me how to sing, and my dad worked hard to show me the hard work that's involved in doing what we all do. I love both of them for that, and they can't take that away from me. Where did you grow up? Ohio. I was born in a little town called Fort Recovery, and we were actually so near the railroad that we could hear the trains coming. It was about a house length between our house and the actual railroad track near the station in that little town. There were still steam trains in those days. I know it sounds weird, but I'm 71 years old, so that would have been uh, the late 40s, early 50s, but the late 40s, we were living there, and, and I could actually hear those steam trains coming past. So I still have a fascination for the railroad. I love going on trains. Quite a few years ago, it's been now, but a friend of ours who was writing songs said, uh, Let's rent a car, not the whole car, but you rent a big enough cabin so that you can take up enough room. And uh, they said, we take the train, because I was living in New York City at the time. And they said, well, take this train all the way from New York to Hollywood and back, and uh, we'll just use it as an opportunity to sit in that car and write music. And uh, <laughs> it was a fabulous trip. I love riding on trains. I have a vision of someday actually doing a tour. Now people truck that stuff. They take all their equipment, their sound stuff, and PA and everything, they load it on a truck, and they go from town to town with the band either flying or on a bus. And I have this vision of doing a tour someday, while it's still possible, where we would route it so that the train could be our vehicle. We would load our equipment onto that train car, and we'd go from city center to city center. So all that would have to happen is the local people would come and pick up our equipment, take it to the venue, and after the concert, we'd go straight back to our train, load the equipment on the car, and get back in our train bed, and off to the next destination. So I still think that's the possibility. I'd love to do it. It is a dream of mine. Do you think listening to the trains as a youth had some kind of a percussive effect on you, listening to the whistle and the wheels rolling on the track? That's a great vision, and, and uh, I hope so. I mean, I, I can't say for sure about that. When I was in the band called Derringer, which uh, was one of my bands I created, our bass player was named Kenny Aronson, and Kenny Aronson loved collecting trains, if I'm not mistaken. He was a big train aficionado. What was school like for you? The best school in town happened to be a Catholic school. My parents didn't think the elementary school there was up to grade, up to snuff. So they actually converted to Catholicism just so we could go to school at that school. 
first eight years, I uh, was a Catholic at Catholic school, and uh, we would go to church every morning before school. And uh, first lessons uh, that we had in class were catechism class, which is a Bible study of sorts. And uh, we would do that every day of the week. And then on Sunday, of course, uh, you got to go to church on Sunday. So I was a six-day-a-week church-going Catholic in grade school until the grade eight. And then after the eighth grade, we moved to another town, which is just slightly larger, Union City, Indiana. So we went from Fort Recovery, Ohio, about 20 miles away to Union City, Indiana. And there I went to a regular parochial high school. But in all those cases, school was great. They taught me stuff, and I appreciate what they taught me. I don't think kids get an education anymore. That's just a personal feeling. But uh, I appreciate having the education that those people gave me. But I was interested in playing guitar. So when I got out of school each day, I'd go and play, and I collected some musicians that became the McCoys, and we would rehearse in our garage. We were a literal garage band. We would face the equipment out toward the street, open the garage door, and the neighbors would all enjoy it. Nowadays, that would be a big no-no. Oh, you can't do that. you got to insulate that room so uh, nobody can hear it. <laughs> so I did that every day. Then when I went to the high school, first thing we encountered was a music teacher there. He had the band department, and he brought me in one day. He said, I hear you play music, and you read drum music. And I said, no. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to read drum music. He said, can you read guitar music? I said, yeah, read pretty good. He said, what's well, this like guitar music? He said, there's no notes. He said, you just look at the staff, and it'll show you rhythms, and you play those rhythms that you read. And he said, can you play a cadence? I said, I don't know what a cadence is. So he went, bum, 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 bum. he said, that kind of thing you hear drummers do when they march. I said, well, I'd probably simulate something like that. So I did it for him. So he made me a drummer in the marching band initially. I played tenor drum. I played snare drum in the marching band. And then uh, he said, well, that's not enough. I'm now going to get you in the high school orchestra. So he brought me in the orchestra. And initially, I played timpani because he realized I could actually read music. Timpani players have to read notes. They have to tune the drum to specific notes that will come up in the orchestration and then play their part. So he made me a timpani player originally, but he had been an ex-alumni of a big band star. You probably haven't heard of him, but a lot of people in those days did. Cy Zetner, he was a trombone player that was very big in the whole big band era. And this guy, he had been in the Cy Zentner Big Band, and he had a whole bunch of charts from the Cy Zentner Big Band. So he put together a musical group, the dance band, they would call it in those days. He said, I'd like you to play guitar in my uh, high school dance band. I said, oh, that's cool. I looked at anything that was fun. Those charts he had were legitimate, real professional charts. So the music was fabulous. And I would got to learn to play guitar with that kind of music and read those kind of charts. The drawback was he would have occasions periodically where we would have to show up to play as a part of that musical ensemble. My brother and I had already joined the Musicians Union. He was the youngest member in the Musicians Union, the American Federation of Musicians. And at that time, in order to not be cheated when we played our little McCoy's gigs, 
we would actually draw up American Federation of Musicians contracts and uh, give them to the promoters so that they couldn't cheat us out of whatever the meager amount of money we were charging them. So one afternoon, he came and said, two weeks from now, we're going to have this thing Sunday afternoon and the dance band's going to have to be there. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I actually have a contract for a gig. We're contracted to play at a professional performance. So I'm, I'm sorry, I won't be there. And he got all bent out of shape. And, and he threatened to throw me out of the band. And I said, I'm sorry, I have a gig. I understand your gig, but to me, your gig is a vehicle for me to learn to do what I do professionally. And this is a professional gig with a contract. So he said, well, I'll throw you out of the band. So I went and did my professional gig that McCoys were contracted to do. He threw me out of the dance band, and that ended my tenure at high school. You learned some professional integrity really quick. How many people of that age were contract bound that knew that they had obligations and were not just kids playing? My dad helped us on that end. I said he was my road manager. Nowadays we call them TMs, tour managers, and uh, they are in some cases in charge of contracts and things. So my dad became that guy. He was the one that influenced us to join the American Federation of Musicians. And not only did they help us with the contracts, but I found out a few years ago that I was eligible for a pension. It blew my mind. That kind of thing never crossed my mind. My bookkeeper actually filled out paperwork, and uh, I now receive a monthly pension check from the American Federation of Musicians. So it turned out to be a good thing. You may be the only musician I know who could be on the retirement plan from their career. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I never did either, and it was a lucky thing that my uh, bookkeeper found a letter from the AFM, which I usually discard, <laughs> and it gave the info about that. And I think I literally had a period of three months or so before the deadline, so we had to fill out paperwork and get all kinds of things together, but the rest is history. That's wild, man. My parents told me you'll never be able to make a buck playing as a professional musician. That's what they thought in those days. And they said, you gotta have something to fall back on. Well, I really liked art class. I was involved in art class in grade school and then in high school. So I enrolled in the Dayton Art Institute. It's a major school. I had my portfolio accepted. I figured, well, I'm not going to be like Vincent Van Gogh, but maybe it'll be cool. I like architecture. Uh, I like Frank Lloyd Wright homes and things like that. So I thought, it'd be pretty cool. I could be an architect and still play music. So that was my plan. I was going to go to school in uh, September of 1965, but I was discovered in August by the people who then took us to New York and where we recorded Hang on Sloopy. We were actually already embroiled in a professional recording career the actual time that I should have gone to school. So I never had to go to school, and in some ways that's a blessing, and in some ways I kind of wish that I had been able to do that. Music is an artistic endeavor, whether it's designing album covers or designing the architecture of a piece of music. So the whole involvement in art has served me well. When did you hook up with Edgar Winter? The McCoys had a pretty successful career. We had three major hits right out of the box. Hang on, Sloopy Fever, and Come On, Let's Go. Fever was a big hit in the 50s by Peggy Lee after the origins, and it was a huge hit for her. Uh, but the McCoy's version was even bigger than hers. 
then the next single was called Come On, Let's Go, which was a big hit for Richie Ballin, the writer and the original artist of that song. Once again, ours was a bigger hit than his. So we had a pretty good career going, but it was also the period when they were calling us bubblegum bands. And uh, that was a term we don't hear much anymore. Me and my band learned real music. We played the blues and we played jazz of sorts and we had variety in our repertoire we considered ourselves first and foremost a really good band and to be characterized as something less than that we found very irritating so after that third major hit they offered us come on down to my boat baby which every mother's son went ahead to do because we turned it down we said we're not doing any more of those kind of songs we refuse we're not going to feed into this bubblegum music thing well that could have been more hits. I mean, I turned down a big hit right there. That was a big hit record. But what we ended up doing was leaving Bang Records, taking out on our own without any real knowledge of how to do that. Our only hope was we won't be doing that bubblegum music. We did two albums for Mercury Records, thinking that we'd be making hit records. <laughs> we did two albums for them. One was called Human Ball, and one was called Infinite McCoys. And both of those albums contained the farthest music you could ever consider from being commercial. <laughs> the albums didn't sell that well. Now, people collect them and consider that music really cool because it was really cool music, but nothing there was commercial. We lived in Manhattan, and we found a little nightclub where we were living. It was called Sea Paul's The Scene, and The Scene turned out to be the place where everybody Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin's and Cats Elliott's and Jim Morrison's. The list goes on and on. These people would come after their gigs out in the United States. They'd fly home in time to get to the scene because it didn't close so poor. And then they just simply closed the doors and everybody that was in there just continued playing anyway. So it was really a hotbed of legendary artists. And we somehow stumbled into there one night. We said, can we get up and jam? So the McCoys got up and jammed at this club, and the owner said, wow, you guys are pretty cool. He liked us so much that we were welcome to jam anytime we wanted. And at some point, we were even called the house band, and that gave me the opportunity to play with Jimi Hendrix many times. And all those other people I've just mentioned, I got to jam with. And that owner of the scene knew that the McCoys wanted to break out, but he didn't really know how to help us yet but he didn't know that we wanted to spread our wings. He read in an article in Rolling Stone magazine, it was an interview with B.B. King, and B.B. King said, I just saw the best blues guitar player, and he said, that guy happens to be a white albino named Johnny Winter. So Steve Paul said, you know, I want to be a manager. Maybe that's how I can help the McCoys. And without any knowledge at all, flew to Texas in the general vicinity of where he read that this guy Johnny Winter might have been, and tracked him down. He brought him back to New York City, signed him to the largest record contract at that time that had ever been signed, the largest money amount ever. So Johnny Winter was signed to a contract. And he went ahead and started making his blues albums. I got to meet Johnny that way, playing at the scene. And somewhere along the line, he brought his brother, Edgar Winter, to New York City. And he got to the scene as well. And we got to jam with him and play a little bit. So we knew Edgar and Johnny through the scene. And Steve Paul. Johnny Winter was having some problems because the first two albums were full-on blues. 
and he was being paid as a commercial artist bigger than any of the commercial artists at that time selling tons of records. So the record company was a little dissatisfied with that particular aspect. So they were urging him to try to be more commercial. Well, Steve Paul saw this as an opportunity. He said, why don't we, in his mind, he was thinking, why don't we merge Johnny Winter and the McCoys? Because the McCoys are basically a rock band, but they can play everything. He found that out. And they want to bust out of that whole world. And Johnny Winter is a blues guy that now wants to play more rock-based kind of music that'll sell more records. So he had this idea, well, you guys will be Johnny Winter's backup band. He proposed it to Johnny, and Johnny said, I don't think that'll be good. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty far-fetched idea. The McCoy's playing with me. Once again, he saw us as that proverbial bubblegum band. And the last thing he wanted to be associated with was a bubblegum band. So he said, well, here's what I'll do. They're playing at this gig uh, in the village, in Greenwich Village, uh, in a couple weeks. Why don't you come down with me? I'll bring you down. And you can hear them, hear what they do, because they're not what you expect. Because at that time, we were playing all this music from the two Mercury records. We were playing blues music. We were playing all kinds of music. We also played the hits, too. But we were playing all this other stuff. So... Johnny said, well, I'm already against this idea, so I'm going to bring Edgar with me and uh, see what he thinks. That night came up, and we didn't know anything about it, and we were on stage getting ready to play, and right up front in the first table to the right of the stage, we saw Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter sitting with Steve Paul. So we went ahead and did our set. We didn't know anything about this plan, and as I am told, Johnny then said to Edgar, well, what do you think, Edgar? Could this happen? Would this be cool? And Edgar looked back at Johnny and said, these guys are cool, be great. So that was the point when we became Johnny Winter and the McCoys. Well, that's what we were, Johnny Winter and the McCoys. They didn't like the idea of Johnny Winter and the McCoys. They said, we can't use that name, that's, that's, that's crazy. So they couldn't come up with a good name. Somebody said, well, how about if we just drop the McCoys and make it Johnny Winter and? So the first two albums I did with him, Johnny Winter and, it was a studio project. And I produced it, as a matter of fact. Johnny was tired of those producers he was using doing his blues albums. He couldn't trust them. He said, they're big city people. I can't trust them. And he said, Rick, you're making these albums for the McCoys, so why don't you come in and see if you can do it? So he allowed me, asked me, to be the producer of those records. So I produced Johnny Winter Hand, which was the first studio album. And then the second one we did was a live project from that band called Johnny Winter Hand Live. And both of those simply are Johnny Winter and the McCoys. At some point before the live album, my brother got an illness. He was the drummer in the McCoys, the drummer with Johnny Winter and. And he got an illness that prohibited him from continuing to play the drums. So we uh, got another drummer. So on Johnny Winter and Live, you now have Bobby Caldwell on drums. Randy Joe Hobbs, the bass player from the McCoys, was still there. And uh, I was still there. So half of the McCoys was still there, two-thirds the way I look at it. And that's how I came in contact with Johnny. And then Johnny, uh, obviously, uh, had introduced me to Edgar. And Edgar liked what I was doing with Johnny, so he asked me to produce records for him. The first one I produced for Edgar was with a band called White Trash. So I wasn't in the band yet. I just produced the record. And he wasn't totally happy with the guitarist. So he called me up from the road, Captain's quite a few times. He called me from the road and said, can you come out and become my guitarist? 
I loved the band. And by that time, Johnny Winter had checked himself into a hospital for drug problems. I was out of a road gig, so I said, yeah, let's do it. So I became the guitarist with Edgar Winter. And then the White Trash Roadwork album, which is the live project, two-record album, I not only produced that, but I was the guitarist in the band at that time. That has a couple songs that people really like that I did. Actually, the Johnny Winter and album was the first time Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo was recorded. It was then done on the Johnny Winter and Live album. We then did it on the Edgar Winter Roadwork album. So by the time I came about the opportunity to do my own solo album, which became All-American Boy, I already realized that this song, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, was well-liked. I'd played it on the road in front of enough audiences that it was very clear. So I said, that's one of the first songs I want to include on my own album. So that was the version that went ahead and became the big radio airplay hit. I have a plaque that says over a million airplays, but that was 25 years ago. It's a huge hit, no bones about it. 90% of the music doesn't even have a band involved anymore. So the bands that exist and the bands that are new are certainly welcomed by me. And uh, there is a difference between real music played by humans and music played by machines. Real music isn't going to go away. The music that is made by computers is still music. Music to me is language. People are either affected in a positive way or are not affected in a positive way. We can't lie through music. So I love that about it. It's the most real, honest method of communication we have. There are new bands coming up that are playing real music. It's a good thing. But it is a machine now. If you're young, especially if you're pre-teen and you're talented, a record company will sign you to a contract. They will then have people create this music for you, then put you into their big machine. And they will then have people take that music to the radio stations that play new music. And that music will be promoted to that radio station specifically. And those artists will be created as stars and the record company will generate the income. It is a big machine. Taylor Swift is a great example of that. She was very young when they signed her. Very few people get signed to those kind of contracts unless they fit those ingredients I just spelled out. Now, people don't even need to do that. Most people download their music straight from their cell phones and they listen on their earbuds one song at a time. They don't download whole albums. They download one song at a time. That actually opened the door for a new generation of music that can bypass record companies. We can make music at home. We can generate a little video to go along with it, push it up there on YouTube, sell it one song at a time through all the subscription-type services that sell music, and people can still choose those songs and make those songs viable. The unfortunate part about it is you won't see those songs reflected on the record charts. You won't see that music reflected on Cashbox, Billboard, Reverb Nation, or any of those kind of places. Any of the places that show real charts, you won't see that stuff reflected very much. They can have huge number of fans. They can sell huge numbers of downloads. They can make a living doing it. And they can go out and have a concert audience. We've opened the door to a whole new way for people to get music to the audience. It's contrary to that big machine. The big machine works in all kinds of music, too. 
depends on what kind of country station you listen to. You can listen to a specific brand of country stations that are part of that country network, where all of those songs are made by specific engineers in Nashville and producers in Nashville, and they are fed into that big country music machine that does the same thing. Those record companies take those records to the radio stations and say, these are the records you play. The same thing is in Christian music. I love Christian music. I happen to be a Christian. I found that there are various kinds of Christian stations. There are some that buck the trend, but there are some that fall right in line. They play music that, once again, comes from Nashville mostly and comes from major record companies. CBS Christian is the biggest Christian label. And once again, they're fed that music through the promoters that bring the music to the radio stations every week. Those are the records that get on that Christian station, if you're in that chain. And those are the ones that become big. And not only that, then they send them out on big Christian tours to some of the biggest audiences in live concerts right now. Live Nation and promoters like that love those big numbers, so they're part of that. Once again, it's all just a huge machine. The good news is uh, the music has to be pretty good or it wouldn't work, but the bad news is it's hard to get in there. The music is good in general, whether you become a big success at it or not. It's a very positive thing. Like I said, it's the only language where you can't lie, and it's the language of my heart to your heart. And that's the most basic, meaningful language that there is. How did you end up producing records for Weird Al Yankovic? The McCoys doing Hang On Snoopy was a produced record by real record producers and that whole deal. And I watched what these guys did when they made records and thought, I can do this. The first records that we did for Mercury, the McCoys, I'd produced them myself without necessarily making a big deal out of it, calling myself a producer or whatever. But I was the guy who made the records. I produced the records. When I joined Johnny and Edgar, they found it easy to ask me to produce their records because I'd already been producing records. It's just something that came natural to me. As much as I feel like a guitar player, songwriter, and a singer, one of the easiest things for me to do is produce records, do the whole studio thing. My manager for a while was this guy, Jake Hooker, and Jake was a co-writer of I Love Rock and Roll, the Joan Jett record. And when Weird Al does a song where he is rewriting the lyrics, that makes him a new co-writer. So if he wants to collect as a co-writer, he has to go to the original writer of that song and say, hey, I'm going to change your lyrics, and is it okay for me to collect royalties? Normally, you would get the 100% as a songwriter, and now, obviously, you're only going to get 50, because I want 50. So he has to ask permission. He was playing music on Dr. Demento's radio show. Very successful, and people liked him. He decided, I have visions of greatness, so I want to make a single recording, because people like this one. I want to do I Love Rocky Road, which is the song I love rock and roll. So he went to my manager, Jake Hooker, who was the co-writer of I Love Rock and Roll, to negotiate that deal. And my manager called me up and said, I got this guy in the office here. He wants to do this thing. When I was a kid, my folks liked Spike Jones. They had a lot of Spike Jones recordings. Spike Jones was a guy from the 40s, and he had a big band, great bands. They would do what we would now call novelty music, novelty songs, funny songs. And 
then along the way, there came various people down through the years that have done that kind of thing, parody music, comedy music, whatever you want to call it. And the thing I noticed about it was they don't have any competition because there aren't two or three of them at a time. There is only one at a time. I heard the song and said, wow, this guy is going to be successful and I should produce not a single, but I said we should do an album. So I went ahead and specced the whole thing out. In other words, I paid for the first album myself of Weird Al, then went ahead and got the record deal for him after creating the album. So I was correct. The first one included a big hit. I did six albums with Weird Al and all the music for his movie, UHF, produced all the big hits that he had. Eat It, Who's Bad, we could go in the book just talking about Weird Al. I produced all the gold and platinum records for Edgar Winter. Anything that I didn't produce was the stuff that wasn't gold or platinum. Frankenstein was a huge hit, a Grammy nominee. So I said, Weird Al will be huge. And everybody will go, wow, that Rick Banger sure can produce records. And sure enough, he was huge. But the people in the record business said, wow, I used to think Rick Danger might be a good producer for me, but now he's a novelty producer. I went, what? <laughs> what are you saying to me? Now you don't want me to produce your record because I'm a novelty producer? I said, the only thing novel about Weird Al is how hard he works compared to the other artists I work with. But at any rate, the bottom line is all the success I had with Weird Al, two Grammys, six major albums, it pretty much destroyed my career as a record producer. So <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing, but I still love doing that. I love working in the studio and creating records. Record companies used to bring you an artist and say, we've signed this guy and we've got this great budget to make our album. Will you be the producer? They don't do that much anymore. And if they do, they don't call me up to be that producer. What I don't like is having an artist coming to me and saying, can you make me a star? In other words, can you create me? Can you make that record? Can you tell me what to do? Then take it to the record company and sell it. I'm not good at that. I'm good in the studio. I'm good at making the records, and that's what I love to do. MTV gave a real platform to a lot of people. And Weird Al was right there at the right time, and they really helped create him, those great videos he made. What kind of projects are you working on now? Well, I have a little home studio. Currently working with a new couple uh, IT guys. We're going to recreate the Rick Derringer website, rickderringer.com, so that it's more of a modern, in-tune, workable piece of machinery. Dial Rick Derringer up on YouTube. You'll find hundreds of things that pop up. If you press on any of them, the first thing you have to sit through is a commercial before you get to me. On the other hand, YouTube won't allow me to monetize my own stuff. They're saying it's all third-party content, whatever. The bottom line is... I'm rebelling against YouTube. I'm taking as many of my things down as I can from YouTube. The plan is, as I write a song, I'll create some kind of video to go along with it. And then I'll have that up on Patreon. And that'll be exclusive so that it can't be stolen, then republished on YouTube. The ability to have a private source on Patreon where people can exclusively go there and get all the music that I make, all kinds of other things. There can be guitar lessons there, for instance. There might be vacation videos of me and my family on vacation. And who knows what could be there. I'm selling seven guitars right now at Grun Guitars in Nashville, the most famous guitar store in the world. 
And we did a little hour show from Groon Guitars a couple weeks ago. And right now at Patreon, you can see that hour TV show that we did from Groon Guitars. So I'm just trying to put up things there and give people content that they will feel like it's theirs. They're part of my family. Good on you, man. I'll go to your Patreon site and check that out. I have a new band. We've only played two concerts together so far. So this summer, we'll be featuring my new band. So people that want to come out and see Rick Derringer, well, you haven't seen my new band. Another reason to come out and see me this summer in my concerts. Once again, you can see it at rickderringer.com. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate you spending time today, and I appreciate what you bring. God bless. Hey, Mother. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Fine. Just got home. Where were you? The market and the dollar store. Oh. Did you go hang out with the coffee people? Yeah. First was Ralph's and then the dollar store. What'd you get at the dollar store? Some stuff for tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow's the 4th of July. Right. You know, this town is awfully quiet right now considering... Tomorrow, the population is supposed to double. Wow. Yeah, typically the population of Ashland doubles every year just for the parade. Okay, Norm. What's Dad saying? Say hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dad. What are you doing? He left. That's it? That's it. Oh, where did Dad go? He and Javid are going first to take Javid to his bank, and then they're going to Costco. What's going on at Costco? Well, he's bringing fruit for tomorrow, and uh, Sandy's bringing two chickens from there and one kosher one for her. Are you having a party? Yeah. I didn't know you were having a party. I know. Well, I didn't know till yesterday, I think. Hold on one second. It's my brother, okay? Okay. Can you know? Okay. That's my Uncle Jerry calling from Israel. Hello? Hello, hello. hello. Sorry about that. That's okay. How's Uncle Jerry? He's fine. He wanted to know what the results are. I said, I don't have them. I just had the test. That was it. Right. How did that go? How did what go? Your test. doesn't go anywhere. You're in the thing, and it, it does what it's supposed to do. I don't know how to read it. I'm not asking you to read it. I said, how did the test go? What was the test? The test was a PET scan. Oh. Was it a full body scan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you laid in a machine and it did the thing? Yeah, and it rolled up and down a little bit. Yeah. Did they say anything about when you would hear any kind of results? They would have results maybe Thursday or Friday, but Thursday is the 4th of July, and the doctor's gone for a week. So I guess when I hear from them, that's when I'll know. Okay. What are you guys doing today, just preparing for tomorrow? Yeah, well, supposed to go to lunch in a movie today, but I don't know if I could do all that. Yeah. How many people are coming to your house tomorrow? We thought it was nine, then it was ten, then it was maybe twelve, but then Han and Judy's not coming tomorrow. No, Judy's not coming today. I'm going to guess top twelve. Is Gino coming? Oh, I don't know. Make it 13, ah, maybe. Okay. I, I don't know. Is Rachel coming? 
No, this is just the Ralph's people. Oh, okay. Tomorrow's Thursday, and tomorrow's power of the shower. That's a real busy day, and it's the 4th of July, and they'll be giving pizzas out to the street people. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, and they did a big thing last Friday with another group on Rose and Main Street, maybe, yeah. where they gave the people haircuts. I saw that. It's very so, sweet. Yeah. It's the nicest thing you can do to people is feed them and clean them up so they can feel okay for a minute. That's for sure. A couple of them were good looking. Yeah, I'm sure. There's just yeah. people behind all that. Yeah. All right, well, you sound a little less tired than you did yesterday. No, I'm tired. Okay. Well, you have a good day. You too, Mom. Love you. Have a wonderful rest you of your too. day. Thank you. Okay. I'll talk I'll see. to you later. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Rachel Sunday. Yes, that's me. Hey, that's you. What's happening, Rachel Sunday, my sister person? <laughs> Just trying to take it easy, and uh, we'll be doing some sorting of the bins for power shower in about 20 minutes. You're doing some sorting of what? From the donations we receive, I sort toiletries in the bins. So I have bins for shampoo, bin for conditioner, bin for lotion, a bin for bar soap, a bin for body wash, a bin for razors, a bin for tampons and pads. I get donations uh, from neighbors and people within the community, and then I just take some time and I go back into my supply room and I start sorting them all so we can make hiking kits with them. What you're talking about is your incredible, magnanimous human service called the power of a shower. And you had a big 4th of July. You threw a party, a pizza party, down at Venice Beach. And that must have been off the chains. Yes, it was a lot of fun. I was hoping we'd get a little bit more sun that day, but it ended up going off without a hitch. We had put out requests on Facebook if we could get a sponsor for pizza, because the week before, we did a special event and ran shower service on 3rd and Rose in Venice, which is where the encampment is, with our mentor shower service partner, Lava May. And this was all created and done by Jesse Wellens, who's a famous YouTuber. He had hairdressers out there, massage therapists. We were running six showers between the two shower trailers. They brought in pizza, and I thought, man, that'd be cool to do that for the 4th of July, especially because we've been doing showers every Thursday for going on a year now and we are actually taking the next three weeks off to go and do a little reprieve ourselves and re-energize for power to shower so we thought this the fourth of july would be the last shower service until we come back in august and we wanted to go out with the thing we did end up getting a 500 dollars sponsor and we ordered 30 pizzas we had 15 pizzas come at 11 o'clock in the morning and then we had another 15 pizzas delivered at 12 30 in the afternoon and we did two extra hours of showers. We came in an hour early and started at 8. And then we stayed and did showers until 2. And I think we did about between 50 and 60 showers. I didn't actually count the names yet. One of our regular guests is a DJ. was famous back in the 80s for throwing house parties in the San Fernando Valley. So he brought out his mic and his speaker and was able to DJ the whole event. It was so much fun. It was just a lot of fun. And I did five hours of laundry the night before. So just about every single person that was out there on the 4th of July got a whole outfit 
that actually fit them. And I purchased 100 pairs of flip-flops, 50 for men and 50 for women. So everybody was pretty set for the 4th of July. I was sad to leave, and I'm going to miss them. The Thursdays were not there, but uh, I know we're going to come back stronger, so it'll be great. So that's what's going on with that. Super badass. That's amazing stuff, and I hope it catches fire and other people see that they have the power to do those kinds of things. Yes. The good news is that people are starting to see us more. We're getting some more exposure. We continue to be privately funded, which is great because then we're not under any specific constraints and doing a lot of extra paperwork to just do shower service, which is awesome. I believe that we are in negotiations right now, and I'll have more information in August that we will be picking up Tuesdays at 3rd and Rose and being able to do showers two days a week versus one day a week and then start scaling from there. So I have really high hopes, and I know there are people out there that also want to make sure that we prevent the spread of some of the diseases that we have heard hit our city, like typhus going around, and there's a fear of bubonic plague coming back. And the way we can prevent that within the homeless community is giving them a shower and letting them clean themselves, and everybody has a right to do that. So we're happy to be a part of it, and hopefully we can be a bigger part of the scaling back of any prevention of diseases. Thank you for helping to curb the potential of something that could be horrific if it goes unattended. People require attention so they don't yep. spread illness and dis-ease. It's cool that you're taking off. Can you talk about where you're going? Yes. Yeah, where are you going? Yeah, for sure. I have been fostering elephants for about 10 years through what's formerly the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, which is now the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. I am an advocate and a conservationist at heart. In the big scheme of things, I'd like to conserve our Earth. On the lower level, I'm trying to conserve humanity at home. And on the wilder side, I'm trying to conserve our animals that impact how we live. And elephants are a very important animal to our environment and how they travel and they poop and what they poop will grow trees. China has asked parts of Africa like Botswana and Namibia to lift their ban on hunting. So I'm going to go see my elephants that I've been fostering for so many years. And then I am going with my husband, Aaron, and we will do two weeks of safari, one week in Kenya, one week in Tanzania. And then we will finish off our trip by flying to Zanz, the island of Zanzibar, and spending the last three nights just kind of unwinding from all of the excitement of being on safari and living in the bush for about 15 days. So I'm going to Africa, it'll be my first time. I'm very, very excited. I started a trip of a lifetime and looking forward to it. But most importantly, we'll be missing the power of a shower for sure. Where can people go find out more about the power of a shower? They can find us online. Our website is powerofashower.org. We are very active on Facebook. We have a couple of really great videos and some super stories. And you can follow us on Instagram. Well, much love, Rachel. Appreciate you, and I look forward to seeing you when you come down. Yeah, have a great rest right. of your day. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Hello? What are you doing? Just got home, bought some chopped liver and fresh challah, and Mom's going to have her crackers, and I'm going to make myself a sandwich. That sounds delightful. Yeah. How was your 4th of July? 4th of July was very nice. We had about 10, 11 of us, maybe 12. It was very nice. Mom said 14. And they all brought something. Mom and I went to Home Depot and bought ribs. 
You bought ribs at Home Depot. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I bought them at Home Depot. You bought ribs at Home Depot. Yeah, they're already cooked. They're delicious. At Home Depot. Yeah. Oh, no, Costco. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, not Home Depot, Costco. I don't think they have ribs here at uh, Home Depot. But it was very, very nice. Start at 12, and most of them didn't leave till almost 4 o'clock. How did Gus do with all the firework business? Didn't bother him at all. Oh. Mom's going to the gym. Have fun at the gym, Mom. Have fun at the gym. So what are you doing today? I didn't do anything today. I cleaned up and everything last night. I just want to relax, maybe yeah. watch a little TV. Unless Mom decides later she wants to go to the show in the afternoon, I'll go with her. What's the weather like over there in Encino? Right now, it's probably about 75. Perfect. Yeah. I just wanted to call and say hi. You're on show number 72, and I think you may remember this person, or at least this song. Rick Derringer is the guest on today's show, and he recorded a number one hit called Hang On Sloopy. Remember that? Yes. It went number one and beat out the Beatles, their song yesterday. Is he going to be on your show? He's going to be on the show, yeah. Rick Derringer, super nice guy. He lives in Ashland? No, he lives in Florida. Is this your last show? It's not my last show. I will not be recording any people while I'm visiting you. Oh, okay. Zoe didn't leave yet, did she? For where? Oh, I thought she was going to Israel. She is going to Israel on July 22nd. Oh, the 22nd. Okay. Yeah. I will be in L.A. for your birthday and to send Zoe off to Israel with her friend Athena on July 22nd. Very good. The 19th for my birthday, they want to have it down at Santa Monica. There's a restaurant on the beach. Well, I'm stoked that I'm going to be there to celebrate your 81st birthday. It'll be nice. Rachel sent us the thing from the beach on the 4th of July because they worked it, you know, for the uh, power of the shower. Yeah, I'm going to hopefully get Rachel on the phone today or tomorrow so she can tell me about her big 4th of July event. I saw the video on Facebook of them getting people showered and pizza and having a big party down there on Venice Beach. Yeah. All right. Well, I just wanted to call and say I love you and see how 4th of July was. And I hope you guys have a beautiful Friday. We will. I love you too, Mark. We're looking forward to seeing you. Looking forward to seeing you guys too. I'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. 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 Hello. Are you building a retaining wall right now? Yes. We just finished the first level and we're finished for the day. You're done for the day? Yes. And what are you doing here in Ashland? Why are you here? Shoot video and record music. You're on show number 72. LuckyDog.com Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Rick Derringer for coming on and really talking in detail about his life and how he was inspired and has stayed in the music business since he was a teenager. Now he's 71, almost 72, which is what this show is, show number 72. I want to thank Gary Lundgren for checking in from out on the road with his movie, Phoenix, Oregon, wishing him and his family and everybody all the best of luck. I want to thank my mother and father for coming on the show. I really appreciate that they have the sense of humor and they're willing to humor me by uh, coming on and chatting. I want to thank Doug Fergus, Lucky Doug Fergus, for coming on and saying hello. 
I want to thank my sister, Rachel Sunday, with the power of a shower. Keep knocking it out of the park like you do. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. All shows can be listened to and downloaded from CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. If you like the Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg show, please go to CastBox and become a subscriber. Well, that's it. As always, thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay through to the end and listen to three exclusive tracks via Rick Derringer being featured right here on this show for the first time. Never heard before, three tracks, Rick Derringer, right here. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 Yes. I am Citizen 44.
Fight for what's right, fight for your life. 